0: Uh, This morning, we are confronted with one of those scriptures that many of us will hear and think, that's just not true. Uh, There are, unfortunately, far too many of these scriptures that just don't make sense at face value. There are far too many of these uh, that I wish could have been stated with at least more nuanced language or some sort of significant explanation about exactly what is meant. The one that I'm referring to specifically this morning is in verse 15. Uh, If we know that God hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of God, that it's already Ours, whatever we ask, we all know that that's just not true. Whatever we ask, Andrea read me a great example of this the other day from a a post. I think it was on Twitter, but um, it was by a comedian and the comedian said he told his dad when he was about seven years old that he didn't believe that prayer worked. And his dad asked him why he he felt that way. And the boy said, well, I prayed that I would get a pool in my backyard and I didn't get it. So his dad says, okay, that's not the way that prayer works. All right. That's a pretty, that's kind of a selfish prayer and prayer. You know, we're supposed to ask and pray for the good of other people. So a week later, The boy went back to his dad and he said, I still don't believe that prayer works. It didn't work. I did what you said. I didn't pray for myself. I prayed for someone else. I prayed for my friend and it didn't work either. And his dad asked, well, what did you pray for? And the boy said, I prayed that he would get a pool in his backyard. It's a bit of a comical example But we all have prayers that by every measure seem to be even Christ-like that haven't come true. We pray that a war would end or that a loved one, a friend, or family could have children. Or that the cancer in a little child will go away and it doesn't happen. We hear the caveat, sure, in verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will. Okay, we hear that. We understand why God doesn't necessarily put a pool in our backyard. But praying for peace or love or healing for others That seems to be pretty much in God's will. But even those prayers aren't always fulfilled. We don't always have what we pray for, as John puts it. So how do we reconcile our experience of disappointment with what the plain meaning of the text seems to say? i'm going to be completely honest up front with all of you i can't i can't reconcile this i really wish i could I, i i did a ton of research on this i i looked at all the explanations that you know brilliant commentators have about this and and who think they do answer it but nothing i read has given me a sense of satisfactorily answering the questions that I have. So I'm going to let you know up front uh, that this sermon is not going to give satisfying answers to very legitimate questions that arise from this text from John. What it will do is point us in a direction the direction we need to travel in our search for answers. And that is toward God in prayer. Taken as a whole, the scriptures, Old and New Testament, Hebrew first and and Greek Testament, are clear and affirming that we human beings will never fully understand the ways of God. Our specific text for this morning reminds us that seeking understanding and experience of God will be a lifelong venture. So what John does teach us is that a major focus for us as followers of Christ will always be to know God in ever deeper ways. And he points us to the primary means for this venture, and that is prayer. Uh, In our text for this morning, John is coming to the end of the letter that he's written to these members of his congregations that he has led (coughs) who have had their faith, their trust in Jesus questioned by some religious elitists. All through this letter, John has been encouraging his sisters and brothers that they have everything they need. They have it. They have everything they need in their relationship with God. Most of all, he assures them over and over again that they have the real presence of Jesus Christ with them, even dwelling within them. We hear in our text, John proclaims in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have, excuse me, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You already believe, now I want you to know that you have eternal life. John is writing to people who already Trust in some manner that Jesus is somehow the unique son of God, the anointed one of God, the Christ, the Messiah. These are people who know that this world is not as it should be, that their own lives are not as they could be. And they are looking to Jesus Christ to guide them into life with God. So as John wraps up this letter to these people he loves, he wants them to know that they don't have to wait to live life with God. Again, uh, his point in verse 13 is that they already have life with God. And now he just says, I want you to know this, that you have eternal life. In fact, the voice translates it, I write this to you who have entrusted your lives to the son of God so that you may realize so that you will realize eternal life is already yours William Barclay notes that when Jesus when John says they have eternal life he doesn't mean eternal in the sense of infinite instead he writes The word for eternal in the Greek is ionios, and it means far more than simply lasting forever. A life which lasted forever might well be a curse and not a blessing, an intolerable burden and not a shining gift. Eternal life is, therefore, nothing other than the life of God himself, themselves. What we are promised is that here and now, there can be given us a share in the very life of God. When John wrote his gospel, the story of Jesus's life and work and teaching, when John wrote the gospel, he had a different purpose than what he has in this letter. We heard that in our gospel reading. This is the same John, and and when he wrote the gospel, he wrote, said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. John wrote the gospel for people who had never even heard of Jesus. He wanted them to trust that Jesus is the Christ and then entrust their lives to Jesus. But he's writing this letter to people who have already heard of Jesus and have entrusted their lives to Jesus as the Christ, as their Lord and Savior. And now he wants his sisters and brothers to live in the life that God has given them in Jesus Christ. I like how D. Moody Smith explains this. That line, he says, that you may know that you may know means both in word and tense not that they may gradually grow in assurance, but they, that they may possess here and now a present certainty of the life they have received in Christ they have been unsettled by the false teachers and become unsure of their spiritual state John 's purpose is to establish their assurance. Putting together the purposes of the gospel and the letter, John's purpose is in four stages. Namely, that his readers may hear, hearing that they may believe, believing they may live, and living they may know. And from our Hebrew First Testament reading, we know that this has been God's intention all along. We heard that uh, through Jeremiah, uh, God proclaims that the time is coming when I will make a new covenant. And this covenant I make will, in that I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a person teach their neighbor or a person say to another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is what God wants for all of us, is to know God as much as we can. And this is what John is hoping now for those to whom he's writing, that they won't just believe it, but they will live it because they know in their hearts and minds that God is with them. And in John's understanding, the best way for those who believe in Jesus Christ to know God is in prayer. I believe that that is John's main point in verses 14 and 15. With using all this language about approaching God or asking things of God. He is writing to people who, for the most part, had been raised to fear God. Because of God's holiness. I've mentioned this before. But it was believed that only. The high priest. Could enter into the presence of God. In the holy of holies at the center of the temple. The only the high priest could do that. And only one time a year. On the day of atonement. And that whole purpose was. To ask God's forgiveness. For all the sins of all God's people my favorite illustration of the fear or reverence even the priests had for god's holiness was that they would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest before he went into god's presence into the holy of holies so that if something happened like if he had a heart attack and died or something they wouldn't have to go in to get him and risk being in god's presence themselves they could just pull the, pull the body out with the rope. And that's the, the reverence and the fear that they had of the presence of God. So what John is encouraging his readers to do in this letter is absolutely revolutionary. He writes... something... <laughs> He writes, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that God hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of God. John is saying that all of us can just walk right into God's presence. Not only will we not be killed immediately, God will actually listen to us. And not only listen to us, God will take us seriously. For John, that is the essence of eternal life, to be able to be in the presence of God and not with any fear, but with joy and hope instead. Okay, so here's for the kids and and all of us adults again. Okay, I don't know about you, but could you imagine, adults, if when you were little kids and your teacher told you, oh, by the way, anytime you have any problem at all, just go talk to the principal. You don't need an appointment. You know, anything's going on, just go down and talk to the principal. Anytime, for anything. I would have been terrified to go talk to the principal if I hadn't already been summoned. And even then I'd be terrified. My principal was a giant man. He was gargantuan. I could never imagine being on such terms with him that I could just go talk to him about anything I wanted to and that he wouldn't kick me out or or but that he would actually listen to me even. But this is what John is saying to those who received this letter again about God Almighty. I don't think John was overly concerned about people in his churches bringing frivolous requests to God. I think the much bigger concern for John was that they might not approach God at all out of fear. And in that way, they would be denying themselves the core of our life with God, being able to be in God's presence and know that and experiencing God's presence in our lives. For John, the more we pray, the more we know God, and the more we live the life that God has for us. Robert Candlish puts it this way. It is thus in the actual use of it that you are to know you have eternal life. In plain terms, the outgoing or forthcoming of our boldness as having eternal life is in prayer that's how we are become bold prayer is the exercise or expression of it for the eternal life which is now in a sense common to god and us comes out in prayer we meet in prayer with god God and we together, and we meet, be it said with reverence, on the footing of our joint possession in a measure of the same eternal life, life in ourselves. God and us meet together in prayer. So John's desire for his readers is that we know God in ever deeper ways, and we do that in prayer. <clears throat> so what do we do with John's words and others in scripture that make it seem like we will receive from God whatever we ask for in prayer? One thing I know for sure <clears throat> is that we can't look at God as some cosmic bending machine. It's not a matter of us paying for what we want with prayer and then God will drop it to the earth. We need to take very seriously the parameter that John sets for us in verse 14. That part about how whatever, if we ask anything according to his will, according to God's will. Again, Robert Candlish uh, sketches a great picture of what this might look like. He writes, prayer is asking, but it is asking upon the ground of a very close union and through identity between God and us. In plain terms, it is our asking as one interested in sympathy, in character, in end and aim, one in short in life or manner of living with God whom we ask through God giving us eternal life, that life being in the, the very life itself of the Son. I am with God, one with God, one with God in sympathy of mind and heart as to the eternal principles and laws upon which the whole plan of God's moral administration proceeds. From that point of view, I consider the question at issue, the question to which my prayer relates, and my prayer regarding it is framed accordingly. It's as if we look at things from the viewpoint of God as much as we can. <clears throat> Again, as John has encouraged us, the more time we spend with God in prayer, the more we will know and understand God. The deeper our understanding and knowledge, the more, I believe, we will understand how God does answer our prayer. But even with all of that said, we still have and will have experiences when we have spent time with God in prayer. We may even... Uh, have come to a point that we feel like it's God's spirit leading us in what we ask for. And yet we still might not see our prayers answered in the way that we had prayed they would be. And so we continue on the journey that will continue the whole of our lives. As John makes clear to us, a major focus of our lives as disciples of Christ will always be to know God in ever deeper ways. And the primary means for that journey is prayer. Amen.